0: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of Spellcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And, well, Andreal is missing today. You see, he has a audition in New York City, and he had to save his voice this week. So, it's going to be me, and you guys, and I will be telling you some ghost stories for the month of October. I hope you've enjoyed Season of the Witch so far, uh, and when this comes out, it will be the day before SpellCon, so that's exciting, and we hope to see you guys there, uh, and then we should be getting a recording of our live show, so that'll be something else that'll be up for you guys, and we hope you enjoy it, and this way, even if you can't make it to SpellCon, you'll be there in spirit. So, my hope is to read two stories to you today. Uh, one that won a award for the best ghost story supernatural fiction, and also one that's from my childhood. It's a little more fun and whimsical. But I hope you enjoy both of them just the same. So the first story is going to be Double Aspect by David Wiseman. Hey Dorothy, come take a look at this. He is up on the ladder, a litter of splintered siding and cracked cedar shingles spread out on the ground beneath him. He calls to her whenever he finds anything that could be of the slightest interest, no matter how trivial. She wants the history of the place so he's determined to bring every nail and cut mark to her attention. Coming! She indulges him, because he's so willing and enthusiastic, such a hard worker, and, perhaps more importantly, requires little pay. She has put half her modest savings into buying the property, and now the other half is under pressure from the spiraling cost of renovations. The house has been empty and unloved for nearly twenty years. Another winter, Two at the most would likely have pushed it too far. A roof leaks for just so long before someone gives way, and this one's been leaking for a while. But along with as is where is comes land, some of it gently sloping down the lake, and most of it cleared by deer. It comes with a barn in better shape than the house and a half mile drive through the woods, her woods now, up from the road into town, along with as is where is, comes dreams of back to nature and living off the land, of breathing new life into old ways. Look here, he calls down to her. You wanted the extra window. Here it is. Where? she asks, squinting up at where he's pointing under the eaves. Someone had the same idea, but it's boarded up. Look. He outlines one side of the window frame, marked by the edges of boards nailed into it. There's a frame under there. Same the other side. You'll see when I get these off. What about inside? Under the panels? It'll be the same. Bound to be. He is right. After he measures and marks the bedroom wall, fifties mail order roses with birds of paradise. He cuts out the section. There's the window, boarded up inside, as solidly as it was outside. He levers out each complaining nail making a neat pile of boards. A tar paper lining crumbles into fragments as he touches it. Dorothy, he calls down the stairs. Here's that window. She stops her painting and runs up the stairs. That's fantastic, and still got the original glass. It's a perfect match to the other one. Sunrise over the lake, sunset over the orchard. Why would anyone want to board that up? I'm going to clean it right now. He's wiped the dust and cobwebs off the outside. Now she carefully does the same. One pane is cracked, and even when she's finished, a gray film darkens the view. "'I'm gonna like this room, Nathan,' she says. She sees fresh white paint, the brass-ended bed, her books on a shelf by a seat under the window, her collection of blue glass catching early light glittering off the lake. At the beginning of September... Dorothy moves into her home. She's been using it, room by room, as the work is done, but sleeping in her caravan parked in the barn. Nathan still comes, but he has a friend who needs work done before the summer is over, so he's down to a couple of days a week. The roof and new siding are done, essential plumbing completed, a new panel and wiring installed, and she has three almost finished rooms to live in. She'll keep going at smaller tasks through the winter. But the next big things, a new wood stove, windows, must wait for spring and a replenished bank account. By the back door will be best. Easy to get at. There'll not be too much snow tucked in that corner, he says, when she asks about getting the wood stacked. But get as much as you can get inside. You can use the old parlor for this year, then we'll get you a decent wood shed. Something else to spend money on. She's had enough of cleaning and painting, and she's promised herself a few days to enjoy her home before the summer's gone. Most of all, she's keen to try her new window seat for more than a few minutes without jumping up to answer Nathan's call or see a horseshoe or an old bottle he's found. She's cleaned the glass more than once, but it's still gray with age. She sits and looks across the old orchard, Plenty green enough, but with little fruit. The trees, long ago, ran out of steam. Sprawling unkempt with boughs broken or leaning down to the ground. In a few years, it might be different. She might bring a few back from the brink. Through the branches, she catches the hint of movement. A dark figure moving slowly. At first, she thinks it must be Nathan, taking a break from stacking the wood. Then an alarm, she thinks of bears. Maybe at apple harvest time, the orchard has been their regular haunt for generations. She runs downstairs to get a better look and warn Nathan. Together, they listen and look, but there's no sign of bear or any other creature. Nathan thanks her and tells her to be careful. That night, she studies a booklet from the local history society, which has maps of the district at different times since it was first settled by Europeans. The first mention of her property is 1888. Next to the black dot denoting the house is the name W. M. Baxter. On her third day of rest, Dorothy rises early, prompted by the dawn light streaming through her Lakeview window. It catches her blue bottles exactly as she'd hoped. She plans to walk across the meadow to the water's edge where she'll sit and absorb the wonderful tranquility of this place. Her place, she reminds herself with a smile. She glances out the orchard window, checking for animals as much as anything else, and is surprised to see a woman, hands on hips, standing with her back to the house. The figure is indistinct, and Dorothy reaches automatically to clear the glass with a wipe, but the grime is ingrained, and the ripples subtly distort the view. Dorothy is delighted to see her first real visitor, even if it is a little early in the day. A curious neighbor, no doubt, come to offer a welcome. Are there Amish nearby? The woman's long dark skirt, white apron, and cap suggest a sect of some kind. When Dorothy steps outside, she can see nobody. There is no car on the drive, no neighbor bearing a welcoming pie. She calls out as she walks around the house to be sure, and ventures a little way into the orchard before disturbing a porcupine. She retreats slowly to the house. Perhaps the woman had been waiting a while and got fed up. Dorothy takes coffee to the lake shore, but cannot settle for more than a few minutes. By the end of the month, Nathan has finished all Dorothy has asked him to do. He'll be back in the spring for renovation season, and he's allowed to plow out the drive once the snow sets in. By the end of the month, Nathan has finished all Dorothy has asked him to do. He'll be back in the spring for renovation season, and he's agreed to plow out the drive once the snow sets in. She'll have no need to call. He'll just come and do it. Not that there's much phone signal near the house. She should get her own plow, but not before she gets a new stove, he tells her. Nathan has been invaluable a godsend, she says, and good company, despite his excitement at every scratch of history he's uncovered. Dorothy invites him for supper, as a thank you for his work, and is slightly surprised when he quickly accepts. He's twenty years her junior, and she'd imagine he'd have better things to do. After eating, they walk together around the house, taking in all the improvements he's made, and talking of those still to come. The newly exposed window is the only real change. Everything else has been replace and repair. Next year, or the year after, she'll take him to get it out and put in a modern unit. "'It'll be a shame to lose that old glass,' he says. "'We'll keep that. Someone will want it. Same with all the old windows.' When Dorothy looks skeptical, he adds, "'You'd be surprised. There's always someone wants old windows.' I had a visitor, did I tell you? She asks him. A woman, dressed like the Amish. She was standing right where we are now, gazing through the orchard. Yeah? Who was that? There's no Amish round here. She didn't stay. When I came down, she'd gone. Back inside, Dorothy's keen to show him her bedroom, especially as it's flooded with the last of the evening sun. It's his turn to look skeptical. Nathan... It's all right. I promise I'll be gentle with you. She smiles and leads the way up the narrow stairs. You've done it nice. We'll get these windows out next year. Easy. No mess. She is drawn to the orchard window and looks down, squinting into the sunset. The long-skirted woman is back, but not alone. A man is standing beside her. Together, they are staring up at Dorothy. He is bearded, shirt-sleeved, "'and holding a broad brimmed hat in his hand. "'She's back,' Dorothy says softly. "'The Amish woman.' "'Nathan steps close behind her, peering over her shoulder. "'I don't know them. They're not from around here. "'I'll go down,' she says. "'Then, suddenly uneasy, come with me?' "'She follows him down. "'As they pass by the parlor window, they see no one waiting outside.' and when they open the door, the yard is completely empty. Just as Dorothy did previously, they circle the house, carefully scan the meadow, and peer through the orchard. "'Come on!' Nathan yells and jumps into his pickup. He spins it round, and they hurtle down the drive. They haven't gone far before they know they won't find anybody, but he drives the length of it. It's a straight stretch where the drive comes out, but there's nothing moving. No plume of dust hanging along the dirt road. Carefully, he drives back to the house. The woods are closing in now, and the sun is down. Peer as they might, they won't see anything. What happened? Dorothy says. What did we see? They tell each other what they saw, although really, they didn't see much. And when they think about it, they agree it was no more than a glimpse. A few seconds, five at most. It's impossible to be sure what they saw. Even so. You'll be all right? He asks, knowing in a minute or two, he'll be back down the drive and away from the place. Yes, she answers confidently. And she is confident. She feels no threat, only deep puzzlement. I'll be fine. Thanks for everything, Nathan. I'll come by in a few days. She waves at his truck is swallowed by the darkening trees. In a few seconds, she's alone in the gloom. A breeze gets up. There are spits of rain in the air by the time she gets indoors. It won't be long before she'll need to get a fire going. A few days pass without Dorothy seeing anybody. No visitors of any kind, Amish or otherwise. She wonders if she is avoiding looking through the orchard window. Even as she thinks it, she catches herself glancing away. Ridiculous, she decides. She'll bring her morning coffee back upstairs and sit by the window and see what there is to be seen. She's hardly taken the first sip before a movement catches her eye. When she looks, there is no movement, but the two figures have returned. The man is lying face up, the woman is crouched beside him. Near his feet is a ladder broad at one end, tapering narrow at the other. They are all tableau. Dorothy studies them as best she can through the distorted glass, determined to know more about them than the few seconds of previous encounters. There is little to be learned. The woman has a bonnet over her fair hair. A dark green dress hides her figure from neck to ankle. The man she stoops over scarcely has anything more to show. Dark clothes and heavy lace-up boots... Working boots. One leg is splayed out awkwardly. He has a full head of black hair, and although the woman obscures her view, Dorothy recognizes the black beard. She waits a few seconds, then more, testing how long the vision, she is assured it is a vision, will remain. Slowly, she shifts from side to side, changing the angle of view by a few inches at a time. The couple remain in sight. A sudden squall of rain splatters the window. As it runs off, Dorothy's visitors have dissolved with the water. She rushes down. If they're real, there will be marks on the soft ground. There will be a trace of the man's outline, drier where he was covering the earth. No marks, no dry patch, no rain. She looks up at her window. Her red coffee mug is still where she left it on the sill. She could call out, search for traces, but no one will answer. She'd find nothing, of that she is sure. A couple of days later, Nathan drops in. You seen those folks again? he asks. Dorothy is tempted to say no. He's probably told a few people already, and she has no wish to become the crazy woman in the old Baxter house. She doesn't want people nudging each other when she goes into town for groceries. But Nathan has shared one of the visions with her. Hmm, yes, on and off. Just glimpses, you know, she says vaguely. He nods. I thought I'd do some research on the house, who's lived here, just to see if there's anything. Maybe you could ask around a little, she says, then adds quickly, if you like. He doesn't commit one way or the other. You had the stove going, yes? Mm, No, but soon. In a few minutes, he is gone. Duty done. Uneasy to be there. For a few days, Dorothy tries a new tactic. She spends as much time as she can sitting at the orchard window to see how often there is a vision, to see what else she can learn of the man and the woman. Only once did she see anything. The man is standing, looking up at the window, soundlessly shouting and waving his arms as if to attract her attention. It is night or dusk, and his features are illuminated by a flickering light from a candle or lantern, although she can see neither. The woman is by his side, kneeling, head down, as if she is a supplicant at the altar rail. It is the first time she has seen real movement from either of them. The movement makes her uncomfortable while they appeared as a still life they were a strange anomaly, but moving that's different. If they can move, they could go anywhere a few days later, having seen nothing more and not wishing to see more. Dorothy hangs a length of black velvet across the window. The nights are drawn in; she will miss no golden sunsets over the orchard, and besides. She prefers her privacy, whether from the eyes of curious coyotes or bearded visions. The following morning, she's just dressed when she hears a truck and a familiar beep beep announcing Nathan's arrival. She draws back the velvet and recoils in terror. For an instant, the bearded man is right there, like a giant, great bird spread against the window, his mouth open in a cry, his eyes wide in horror. She falls backwards dragging the velvet from its pinning. It covers her like a dark shroud. She thrashes and screams until she frees herself. Dorothy? Are you all right? Shall I come up? Dorothy? Nathan is calling up the stairs. She tries to compose herself, but is still breathless and shaky as she goes down to him. You look... Here, Sid, I... Can I... His voice trails off he was at the window she says stiffly you were there out there did you see he shakes his head standing in the yard that's okay at the window like that that that's not okay they are silent for a while then dorothy collects herself some color returns to her face and her breathing settles hello nathan Good morning. How are you today? I'm okay. There's snow on the way. Tonight, maybe. Might not be much. Anyway, I thought you should know. Thanks. In the late afternoon, Dorothy enters her bedroom and looks cautiously at the angle through the orchard window. She sees her yard, the orchard, the fading light, nothing more. She gathers up the velvet and tacks it firmly into place, this time with no easy option of pulling it aside. In the evening, she eats by her roaring stove, the house filling with the smells of burning wood. It's an evening to sit with a bottle of wine and enjoy being snug in her home, a night to sleep soundly in blue flannel pajamas as the first flakes of winter drift down, spitting steam off the red-hot chimney. then. Better than I thought it'd be, he calls down to her. She is taking the little sacks of apples as he passes them down and carefully packing them in the wooden boxes she has on the dolly. It is their first proper harvest, six years since they put the trees in. They've added to them each year, carefully grafting a dozen or so each spring. In another six years, they'll need help to get the crop in. For now, They're happy their venture is thriving. It's wonderful, William, and there's hay in the barn and food on the table. We are blessed. She is thinking of more than food. She has a secret, a happy secret, that she has yet to share with her husband. Seven years of marriage, and finally, they'll have a baby to show for it. She's hugged the knowledge to herself, at first so she could be sure, then waiting for the right time. They are tired from another day's labor when they sink into their bed. The last of the light is still in the sky as they lie together and watch through the square of window as the stars come out. It is her moment. William, she says softly, in spring there'll be another mouth to feed, God willing. He sits up on his elbow, leaning over her. Amy, you're sure? Yes. He is overjoyed and falls on her kissing her face and stroking her hair. Blessed she had said, and surely they are. We're ready. In the morning, he insists that she take time off from the orchard to save her strength, he says. She wants to please him, so she agrees. She'll find plenty to do in the house. He works in the orchard, picking and packing a little more fruit, then scything grass and repairing the deer fence, All the while, he keeps a lookout for her and sees her at the bedroom window, her bonnet off and her hair hanging loose. He waves, but her head is down, reading her Bible most likely. He said to take his day's rest, and she is. There will be a long road ahead, and he's happy to see her settled and quiet. A baby. He can't quite believe it. When she calls to him for his lunch, he's at the kitchen table in no time. They sit together with a loaf, still warm from the oven. They're still smiling at the project prospect of a family. "'Good to see you resting up this morning, Amy,' he says. "'I don't know how you found time to bake.' "'How do you mean?' "'I've been in the kitchen all morning. "'Although, true enough, I sat a couple times. "'I thought you were up in the room, by the window, reading. "'It doesn't matter.' They don't argue, they rarely do, and not today of all days. The light plays tricks, and it is the season for mist to roll up from the lake in slow, rising spirals. A few mornings later, he thinks of that again, and he's in the yard and looks up, attracted by a glittering blue thrown up on the ceiling of their bedroom. The fractured light reminds him of a kaleidoscope, less regular, but fantastic in its variations. It seems a shadow passes across the projection, and he calls his wife. He expects her at the window, but she comes from the kitchen. William? Look, he says, pointing. Look at the light. Off the lake, she says. I'm sure, but the color. So blue. And look there, a shadow moving. She considers for a moment. The horses are down at the water. A week passes, a happy week, an abundant week as the community celebrates a good harvest and joyfully shares William and Amy's news of a baby. The summer lingers in warm days and calm nights. They have their wood cut and stacked, the barn is full, the chickens are laying. On a Tuesday after supper, William walks out down the lake and looks back at his house, a darkening shape against the brilliant evening sky. Somewhere inside, Amy is attending to the last chores of the day. He meanders across the meadow, all the sounds and scents of the land enfolding him. Until he hears her calling, sudden and urgent, he quickens his pace as she calls again, then he breaks into a run. He finds her at the bottom of the orchard, shouting for him, thinking he's up there. When she returns, when she turns, he sees the fear on her face, and she seizes him fiercely. William, there's people in the house. People? Who? In our room. Look. A woman's figure is framed in the window, silhouetted by bright light. Behind her, another movement casts shadows. He stands, gaping, astonished, torn between comforting his wife and investigating the intruders. Wait here, he says after a few moments. I'll see what it is but she holds him tightly. No, she insists. Abruptly, the light they see in the room is extinguished. In its place, the window reflects a dim imitation of the deepening sunset. Come, we'll go in together, he says. Their house feels as it should. They light a lamp and climb the narrow stairs. He's tempted to call out, but knows it would only unsettle her. Their room is as they left it, no bright light, no figures or presences. As he sets the lamp on the nightstand, she imagines how she looks now, exactly as the intruder had looked to them as they stood in the yard. For a fearful moment, she wonders if time has twisted and she's seen herself. "'Another trick of the light?' he asks, half to his wife, half to himself. "'What else?' she says a little shakily. We built this place, every stick of it, my father and brothers, we know there's nothing here. And good new wood, nothing used went into it. There's no spirits in this house. She wants to ask him if it can be herself she's seen. Instead, she picks up her Bible from beside the bed with trembling fingers. The good book has been here all along. We have come to no harm. In a movement of sudden concern, she puts her hand on her belly, but feels nothing is amiss. We've come to no harm, she repeats. The episode hangs over them as a cloud, although they feel no immediate threat and are uncertain of what they really saw. They don't mention it to anyone, and they don't mention it to each other. Amy doesn't include it in her prayers, either. As days pass, the event becomes less real something that might have happened to someone else. Each day without a new sighting pushes the intruders farther away. Then one night, in the small hours before the first streaks of dawn are in the sky, Amy wakes, fearful, sweating. She sits on the bed and tries to shake the demons from her head. Not that she knows their form or shape. Their substance has evaporated, leaving only a residue of terror. Amy, what is it? I don't know, she wails. We must get up. Get out. He lights the lamp and guides her down the stairs. She is forgetting outside as quickly as possible, but he stops her. No, it's cold. Here, your coat. He puts it round her shoulders before she scuttles out. The night is silent, black, cool. He holds up the lamp to their white faces, quick breaths hanging in the air between them. Better? he says. Yes, she nods. Thank you, William. Let's calm ourselves before we go back to our bed. Come, we'll walk a little, once, twice around the house. A noise from somewhere in the orchard takes their attention, and they strain to listen for a repeat, but none comes. When they turn back to the house, the window to their bedroom is alive with a raging fire, orange and yellow flames, intense, frightening, what providence has let them escape? Amy falls on her knees and gives thanks to her God for deliverance, while William stands in wonder. Why is there no smoke? No crackle of timbers? No sparks leaping high in the air? He lays the lamp on the ground behind them to be sure of what he's seeing without the flicker of light in his hand. In the instant of taking his eyes from the window, the fire is gone. Amy? Amy? He says gently, laying a hand on his wife's shoulder. Your prayers are answered. She looks up, tears streaming down her face. What is it, William? Miracles or the devil himself? Neither, I think. It'll come clear. Not that he believes what he says. I can't go back. I'll be too afraid, she says. No, not tonight. It'll feel different in the light. It'll be our home again. You'll see. This will be no more than a bad dream. Maybe that's what it is. We'll make a soft bed in the barn and sleep safe and sound in there. We'll see what's to be done in the light of day. They sleep, fitfully, for a few hours before the sun is up. William, practical, sensible, reasons that the longer they lie in the hay, the more they'll reflect on why they are there. He leads the way to the house and immediately up into their room. Grasp the nettle, better now than to let the fear take hold again. It is as he expects, their unmade bed as they left it, the sun glittering off the lake through the mist swirls on the surface. Looking across the orchard, they see the work they've done, and a section of fence still to be fixed. Here's what might be happening, he says slowly, sitting on the bed and patting for her to sit beside him. She looks expectantly at him, urgently hoping his reasoning will banish their troubles. When we first saw something, a figure, a shape, shadows moving, we thought it was the light off the lake, reflections, and we were making something out of nothing. Maybe that seed has lodged in our heads, and now we're making more of it all. And your nightmare last night? That played right into it. By the time we were outside in the dark, we were both ready to believe something was going to show itself. Maybe we just fooled ourselves, frightened ourselves into it. Maybe we're still part asleep. She wants to be convinced for what he says to explain everything. Their room looks right enough. It feels right. Her eyes are taken to the orchard window. Look at the glass, William. It's all smoky. He goes to the window and studies the pane. It's true. There's a hint of gray about it. "'that he hadn't noticed before. "'When he wipes his wet finger across it, "'nothing comes off. "'He looks at the mark he's made, "'and then at Amy. "'I don't suppose it's made it any better,' "'he says, straight-faced, "'then grins and pushes her back on the bed "'so they both laugh and kiss. "'Come on,' he says. "'Let's get breakfast to do something with this day. "'But here's a promise, Amy. "'If you see anything more, or I do, then I'll close up the window. I'll even close up this room if you like, and we'll make our room over the parlor. I'll put a window in there and make it so perfect for us and our family. As the nights grow colder and the days grow shorter, the forest around them puts on its red and gold fire show. William and Amy pick up their rhythm again, although it's subtly changing as the weeks pass and their baby grows. With no further events or sightings, It's possible to believe there will never be anything further until the third week of November. It is late in the day when William returns from closing up the chickens in the barn. The gray gloom is rapidly deepening, and he's looking forward to a warm fire and a supper at the kitchen table. As he walks below their bedroom window, some extra sense makes him look up. She is there again. There's no mistaking her for Amy. Amy. Not this time. She's dressed in blue pajamas and is hammering on the window frame, her mouth wide in a scream. Orange smoke billows behind her. He stands back to get a better view, to see if he can't get a better understanding of this apparition. Then she's gone, leaving only the smoke. A moment later, that is also gone. Only the black, blind window looking out on their orchard and on him gazing up at it. "'William, what is it?' she asks, the moment his boots are off. "'Nothing. It were nothing at all.' He lies. She is not deceived. "'That woman, is she back?' He nods. "'At the window again? What this time?' She puts the dish she's holding back on the stove and sits heavily, her arms spread across the table to him. "'Just standing, looking.' I don't feel she means any harm, he adds, to deflect her of his new lie. Oh, William, she cries, reaching for his comforting touch. I know what I promised you. Too late now, but I'll do it to the morning, inside and out. We'll try that and see how it works for us. I'll make a proper job of it. All night they toss and turn, in and out of sleep, their fears undefined and all the worse for being so. As soon as it's light, he's forgetting out into the freezing mist to get started, but Amy says to wait, not before I put something warming inside of you. While she's making breakfast, he measures the frame, pulls some planks from the wood loft, and sets up a trestle to cut them. Then they sit together, burning their tongues on the porridge, laughing nervously at their foolishness, confident they have the solution to their problems. The view over their orchard is a small sacrifice to make. He cuts the lengths, eight for each side. Inside first, he says. I'll move your things. I love you, William Baxter. He works carefully and cleanly, moving her hairbrush, comb, and mirror from the nightstand. To be sure no light penetrates, he tacks tar paper over the window before nailing the boards in place. The fit is perfect. They cover the frame exactly, butting up against the wall. With the early morning light streaming in from over the lake, their room seems hardly less bright than before. In the yard, he looks up at the satisfyingly darkened window. He fetches the tallest of his orchard ladders from the barn and checks the hammer and nails in his work belt. He'll take up one length at a time. There's no rush. At the top of the ladder, he balances himself before raising the top board into position above his head. It's going to fit as neatly as those inside. He has one hand on the board, and the hammer is raised in the other, when the tar paper and planks are swept aside as if they are no more than a curtain. The woman is there, right in his face, as horrified as he is. He recoils from the phantom, falling backward, one foot caught under a rung. He twists in his fall, trying to save himself, but he lands head first snapping his neck. William's eyes are open when Amy reaches him. She imagines he is no more than bruised and stunned until she cradles his flopping head in her hands. Then she falls on him, kissing his brow and whispering his name. She looks up suddenly, feeling she is being watched, but the window is blank. I hope you enjoyed that ghost story. And thank you, David Wiseman, for being the author of that story. I got this from theghoststory.com. There's lots of wonderful ghost stories on this website. So if you do want to check it out, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to. I hope I did well with the story. Uh, It's a little late and my voice is kind of tired. But I hope the raspiness is something soothing instead of annoying. Uh, Now we will take a small break and be back with our fun story. Okay, and we're back. So now for one of my favorite stories from my childhood. It's from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I know the movie recently came out, and I did quite enjoy it. One of the first times I haven't been disappointed by either a remake or something from my childhood that they turn into a movie. Actually, it was really well done, and, uh, you know, Andrea and I should really do a cover of that. I believe we mentioned it before, but we want to do a movie review and really get into the ideas behind that movie and how they changed it from the book and what works and, you know, what was a little bit different, but okay. Now, I'll be reading a story from that book and it's one of my favorite because, well, it's kind of ridiculous, but also really spooky and disturbing. So I hope you enjoy. And uh, this is kid-friendly, so if you do have kids and you want them to listen, this will be a safe story for them. It's called The Big Toe. One day, a boy was digging in his garden when he saw a big toe sticking out of the ground. He tried to pick it up, but it was stuck. It wouldn't budge, so he pulled as hard as he could, and it came off in his hand. Then he heard something groan and scamper away. The boy took the big toe into the kitchen and showed it to his mom. That looks like a nice piece of meat, she said. I'll put it in the soup and we'll have it for dinner. That night at the dinner table, the boy's father scooped the big toe out of the soup and chopped it up into three pieces. The father, the mother, and the boy each ate a piece. Then they did the dishes, and when it got dark, they went to bed. The boy fell asleep almost at once, but in the middle of the night, he was rudely awakened by a strange sound. He listened closely. It sounded like there was a voice coming from outside his window, and it was calling to him. Where's my big toe? It groaned. When the boy heard that, he got very scared, but he thought, It doesn't know where I am. It will never find me. Then he heard the voice once more, only now it was closer. "'Where's my big toe?' it groaned. The boy pulled the blankets over his head and closed his eyes. "'I'll go to sleep,' he thought. "'When I wake up, it'll be gone.' But soon he heard the back door open, and again he heard the voice where's my big toe it groaned then the boy heard footsteps moving through the kitchen into the dining room into the living room into the front hall they slowly climbed the stairs closer and closer they came soon they were up in the upstairs hall Now, they were outside his door. Where's my toe? The voice groaned. The boy watched in horror as his bedroom door opened. Shaking with fear, he threw his bedclothes over his head and listened as the footsteps slowly moved through the dark towards his bed. Then, they stopped. Where's my toe? The voice groaned. You've got it! Mm hmm I hope you enjoyed that. That's always a fun one. Um, When I taught English in Italy, I actually introduced this to the girls I tutored. Um, Now, they may have been a little bit younger than maybe what the book goes for. uh, Seven and two. Um... Nobody judged me, but I wanted to introduce them to, you know, the silly ones like this. Things that aren't scary um, and wouldn't hopefully give them nightmares, which we were good. They were were tough. Uh, But things like these are fun to read to little kids because you're supposed to be next to them and at the you've got it part, you grab them and you scare them. So I think it's fun. It's just kind of gross. It's really not too scary. Um, But of course, use your own discretion. Um, now, there is an alternate ending, so, uh, the book does include that. If you guys have the book, uh, you can always read that one as well, whichever one you prefer. Uh, and I suggest getting a copy of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I don't know how, I don't have one yet. Um, funny enough, I'm not reading this from a book, I'm reading it from online. Uh, scarykid, scaryforkids.com, uh, and they have the, you know... I guess, typical scary stories and some from this book. So I really have to get my hand on scary stories to tell in the dark. It's one of those classics, much like Shel Silverstein that I have in my bookshelf. So I hope you enjoyed this special episode um, and that the ghost stories were a nice little change. It is October. We're getting really close to Halloween. And so I thought it would be special. Uh, like I said, the day after this comes out, it will be SpellCon on Saturday, so that's really exciting, Um, and we are going to have an absolutely wonderful time, be completely exhausted in the best way, and uh, Sunday is going to be a nice day of rest, and then the Friday after, hopefully our live of our SpellCon episode, our first ever live show, will be up on the podcast for you, um, recorded, so this way you guys get to hear it. Um and you know, even if you can't be there, we'll have we'll have up for you. So you can listen to it on iTunes or Anchor or Spotify, uh whatever, you know, podcast app you listen with. Um and speaking of that, if you do listen on iTunes, uh we would love for you to rate and review. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh we do love constructive criticism. We also like reviews and things that you enjoy. So we'd love to see what you're enjoying about the show. Um, with over 20,000 downloads, I hope you guys really are enjoying it and that you keep coming back for more. Um, remember, we do want to have some uh, listener episodes in the future, so please share your ghostly encounters, uh, witchy fun things if you yourself are a practicing witch, pagan, or any other religion, really. Um, we do have a wonderful story in for a listener episode, so I'm hoping to garner more uh, to have a few in one episode. Uh, but, you know... It'll be out there, and I can't wait to share that story. Uh, The person listening knows who they are, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, They will remain anonymous, and if you also want to remain anonymous, we can make that work for you. You just let us know in the email, and we will either make up a name or just not use a name at all. So yeah, um, we hope to see you at SpellCon. Uh, We will let you know about it. You can always follow us on social media with SpellCon, Uh, of course. You can follow us on social media for the podcast as well. Uh, and other witchy endeavors that we do. So, Andreelle does have an Instagram, uh, and our Instagram for my personal witchy everything is witchy page. It's also the one for the podcast because I don't want to have to regulate a million Instagrams; it's a lot of work. <laughs> so, it's all the same, covers a lot of the same stuff. So, I just post about the podcast on my witchy page, uh, and we are also on Facebook on witchy page, Um But we do have Spellcast Podcast. Uh, page and a private group you can join wishy page though uh, you can book your tarot readings there we do ones over the computer we do parties um and all of that so yes it should be a wonderful time and uh we hope you enjoy everything like i said i don't mean to repeat myself but uh now that we're winding down you can find all of our social media our patreon if you want to support the show um if you're able to that way uh, is on the link tree in the show notes. And if you are not able to support us through Patreon, uh, talking to your friends, sharing, liking the show, rating and reviewing are all ways you can help us. Uh, sending us nice emails and notes. We love that too. Uh, there's also our shop up. Uh, you can go there through the link tree, but we have Spellcast Podcast merch now, which is exciting, t-shirts, and a really cool reusable, um, like a mason jar kind of mug. And... Uh, I also have stickers and buttons, so you just have to talk to me to get those. Um, But yeah, I think that's about all the business. Uh, And I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we look forward to seeing you in the future. So remember, there's Little Witch and all of us, and the spirits live in the mirror.